0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This piece has been brought
2: to you by Bonnie Plants,
0: bonnieplants.com.
2: I'm Erica Roy, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio
1: Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Okay. Yes, I am ready. And it's Monday. It's just about 12 o'clock. And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking with one of my all-time favorite guests, uh, the wonderful Tom Philpott, uh, who is waiting anxiously on the line to um, engage with me in another substantive conversation, wide ranging and free flowing. Right, Tom? Tom. Hey, Katie. How's it going? It's good to hear your voice. It's been such a long time. Now that you have your own podcasts, Tom, I see that you have been neglecting me and I think we need to remedy that. But before we do it, let me launch into my fabulous new segment, Joys and Sorrows. And by the way, Tom, you should feel free to pop to, uh, you know, add your own two cents. Did you have any Joys and Sorrows for me this week?
1: I always have joys and sorrows.
2: <laughs> anyway. I well, mean. Yeah, I know. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead, but you feel free to chime in. So first, my first uh, sorrow, Here's a, I'm starting with a sorrow, but we, we have many joys this week. Um, Bayer is considering uh, acquiring Monsanto. So remember a few weeks ago, the Chinese announced that they were thinking about buying Syngenta, and I think it's right now in sort of an antitrust limbo. Um, well, now Bayer... The maker of aspirin and so much more, a German company, is considering the acquisition of Monsanto, which is currently struggling a little bit financially thanks to the cold shoulder being given to their new genetically modified soy seeds. Well, why should we care about that? Well... I'll tell you. The thing is, is that all of our agricultural companies are being absorbed by other multinational agricultural companies, and the dreaded consolidation brings even more dreaded price-fixing and supply muddling than we have already come to expect from monopolies. So one must absolutely wonder why and where is our Judiciary Department, our Judicial Department, in uh, you know bringing up antitrust legislation or antitrust, uh, you know... Laws that would prevent some of these um, consolidation moves and block some of the sales. What do you think about that, Tom? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. So let me—I'm going to go on actually because we are going to talk about go on. this. Joy, Joy. Thanks to Adam Danforth, who is the butcher, who is uh, basically becoming like a star butcher. If there could be such a thing. I mean, I—I I, I love Adam, and I think it's hilarious that he is literally making hay on the fact that he wrote these two incredibly uh, painstaking books about taking apart animals. Um, he's. He's a scream. But anyway, so he, uh, thanks to Adam, he made me aware of KFC's, that's Kentucky Fried Chicken's newest marketing ploy, chicken-flavored nail polish. Not kidding. Whoa. I know. And why, <laughs> you may ask? Because the company spokesperson suggested that, quote, the nail polish was a way to remind the younger generation of the great taste and good times that the brand stands for. Nothing. Nothing says good times better than biting your nails, right Tom? <laughs> right. Doesn't that blow your mind? Chicken flavored Chicken surprise so
1: chicken flavored nail. Nail
2: polished. I know you're going to rush right out and get some. Okay, here's I'm gonna. This was not I wasn't sure whether this was a joy or a sorrow. Maybe as so much in life, a little bit of both because we all know that at this age one realizes that life is really about gray areas, not about black and white. But so um, I saw this um, ad for something called the heart attack grill. Now, Whether this is a joy or a sorrow, I'm not sure. The website is pure joy. It has 50s-style graphics of busty nurses in tight-fitting uniforms administering menu items such as flatliner fries and double, triple, and quadruple bypass burgers. And if you can finish one of those bypass burgers, you get a special reward, and then you are wheeled out to your vehicle in a wheelchair by your quote-unquote nurse. See, I think that's hilarious. I really do. Whoa. Isn't that great? It's in Las Vegas, um, of course. On the other hand, um, it, you know, on the one hand, it may well live up to its name and kill off the idiots who think a 20,000-calorie meal is a great idea, which would improve our gene pool. On the other hand, it's a sorrow that people actually think this might be a good place to eat 20,000 calories at a sitting. I know one thing. Uh, the whole thing made me laugh my head off. I was just, like, beside myself with joy over this incredible <laughs> website. It really is worth checking out. It's They used to have three or four um, franchises, but they've, they're down, I think, only to the one in, in Las Vegas. And the 20,000-calorie the the burger is, like, four... Qu- quarter pounders or six quarter pounds. I mean, it was like an enormous stack. It was just, it was unbelievable. Oh my it was so gross anyway um here's a sorrow um and tom you can certainly weigh in on this normally canadians strike me as the most reasonable people in the hemisphere but they have just approved ge salmon why aqua bounty has prevailed and i'm not sure why this is considered a good thing to the citizens they they really they just passed it without a whimper um but presumably the salmon are raised in inland pens and then we can start freaking out over KFOs for fish um i'm not sure what we will call them but something like that right
1: Katie, do you know if they, if they approved it for production or for consumption?
2: That's a good question. I think it was consumption. Oh, um,
1: because it, it would just be ridiculous because, you know, there's a pretty, still a pretty robust um, wild salmon fishery in Canada. In, in yeah. BC. And the, instead of, and there's also a, a really intense uh, salmon farming industry up there that mm-hmm. is stamping out the wild fishery. And it would just be insane to double down on salmon, you know, any kind of farm salmon, much less GE salmon, right. when they should be figuring out how to preserve their um, the, their wild salmon fishery, which is going to be a lot more valuable as time goes on as there's less and less wild salmon in the world.
2: Well, I, I guess, I don't know, but, you know, it's funny. Maybe this is connected to the whole pebble mine um, situation, remember, because that's the biggest salmon fishery. And yep. Um, and of course, if they, you know, if they have more than enough salmon to go around, well, then they could say, well, who cares whether we have a wild fishery or not? That would be my suspicion right. in that. But in any case, I think it was approved for consuming for consumption. In other words, they okay. they can they can sell it. Whether it's a, totally approved for production, I don't know, but they've certainly crossed one giant uh, milestone for that. Here's another joy, and this is really a great joy. A group of Massachusetts kids won their suit against the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. Quote, the plaintiffs contend that their constitutional rights are being violated by the ongoing failure to curb greenhouse gas emissions, even as officials have known about the climate change link for decades. That makes a total of three suits won by youth groups who sue their states for a failure to address climate change and environmental standards. Washington State and Oregon are the other two. I spot a trend, and I think this should be like a civics class, if such a thing exists anymore, a civics class project across the nation. Don't you think that would be a great idea?
1: Fantastic.
2: And then lastly, uh, Joy Supreme, the FDA has finally revised the Nutrition Facts label to reflect added sugars and real portion sizes, among other changes. I'm sure they could do more, but at last, a real reflection of how much sugar is added to commonly consumed foods. I do consider that progress. So, um, so uh, you know, more joys than sorrows this week. Isn't that so great? Sometimes it's the other way around, and then I feel, I feel guilty because my show is such a bummer most of the time <laughs> anyway.
1: Well, let me give a quick Joy. Yeah. Um Back in 2009, some listeners may remember there was a massive salmonella breakout in eggs. Yes. There's this huge. I think it involved like a half a billion eggs. Yes, and that's right. It weeks, was the Wright Farms. Weeks,
2: yeah, Wright Farms. And it was a
1: really virulent strain of salmonella. Yeah. Well, the company behind it um, was this real um, sort of unsavory characters called the DeCosters, the and they yes. owned. They had these shell companies, and they owned companies all over the country. And I, at the time, did some reporting and added it all up and found out that they were the biggest chicken company in the or the biggest uh, egg company in the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's a bunch of people got sick. Oh, and yeah. um, anyway, there was a long federal investigation, and the father and son team behind the company just got convicted. <sighs> And sentenced to three months. Now, normally, I don't take any joy in the, the carceral state or people going to prison, but these guys—I'm yeah. not going to shed a tear for.
2: No, definitely and not. And I think
1: three months is a is about right.
2: Really, I would have um, said more. Didn't they give Stuart Parnell from the American Peanut Company way, way more time than that? They nailed him they for, for years and, and years. He was
1: also um, a, a very questionable character, indeed. But it just shows that there that. We're capable of putting some teeth behind um, enforcement of some of these. I mean, of course, you know, most of the problems, as I showed at the time, were readily apparent before the outbreak. Yeah. And so this is sort of too little too late. But it does show that if you're just going to be so negligent and create conditions that almost ensure that there's going to be some Mm -hmm. kind of outbreak, that you're going to do some jail time. And let's hope that... um,
2: I hope so. Well, with that, we will take a short sponsor break, and then we'll be back for the body of the show um, with the great Tom Philpott. And uh, those of you who aren't familiar with him, I'll read an extensive bio, and then I'm going to tell you a little anecdote about when I found out that Tom really is the guru that we all have suspected all along. So we'll be right back after the sponsor drop. Stay tuned. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Pianissimo Short by Techstar. We'll be right back.
0: It's not just your garden.
2: It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow. With Bonnie. Right on Bonnie Plants, man. I I could use that app. I'm quite an intense gardener myself. So we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Tom Philpott, a regular, a semi regular, actually, at this point. Um, And for those of you who don't know, Tom is the food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones. Prior to that, he was at Grist for five years, and his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian. He is also the host, or one of the hosts, on a new podcast, a wonderful podcast, by the way, called The Secret in with Raj Patel and Rebecca McEnroy, which is on KUT, I think, in Austin, right? As That's well right. as The Bite, a podcast that has been developed for Mother Jones magazine, on which Tom is also a host. Um, so, Tom, first of all, I want to just say this little anecdote about how I, I, I realized that you really were the most amazing person. Um, and I'm, you're going to blush all over the place, but um, here's what happened. So Tom was moderating a panel at St. John the Divine last winter, and uh, the two other panelists were Karen Washington and Tom Colicchio. Remember that, Tom? You were at the opening for that I sure exhibition. I Okay, so it was a really interesting panel. But what was so cool is, like, somebody in the audience asked a question, and Tom answered it by just pulling out of his back pocket a complete history of African-American farming from the Civil War to the present. I mean, it was just like breathtaking. I think everybody's jaw kind of fell open a little bit. It was just like out of the blue, we just got an American history lesson that nobody was expecting as a response to this question. It was so cool, Tom. I mean, your grasp of these issues is just so broad and deep. I am, I am forever in, in admiration of you. Anyway, but you have been... Well, thank been, you so much, Katie. Oh, of course, my darling. So you have been incredible busy. I mean, the number of articles you have been pumping out <laughs> lately. Are you taking Adderall, or you know, have you suddenly acquired an addiction to speed?
1: I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just a lot of coffee. And, it's I mean, you are so prolific. And the tide never. You know it. For real. Uh, the, the deadlines just keep on rolling. Katie.
2: And there's just no shortage of stories either, which is interesting as well. No,
1: there are really not. Um, I am feeling, you know, right now, just in the past couple of weeks i've done a lot of stuff on the poultry industry yes i think we're going to talk about that later Mm -hmm. and i just more stories keep emerging i just cannot keep up i'm just that one industry which is just one part of this you know huge beat that i have
2: oh yeah no kidding well you know that i tom did you know that i wrote a book I wrote a book about industrial that. meat farming, or industrial meat production. Thank you. It's going to come out next and spring. And you turned it in,
1: and it, but it's not out yet, right? Right. I turned Is it in the manuscript.
2: Right? I did a little bit of editing on it, whatever they asked me to fix. And then, um, yeah, and then it'll come out next spring. Um, and it does Wonderful. get distribution in the it. States. Thank you. I might ask you for a blurb if you don't mind. But anyway, we can talk about that later. Sure. Um, so some of the stories that Tom has been covering are antibiotic use at in at Purdue chicken, and the, the impact of pesticide Exposure on children in farming communities, meal kits, and Mark Bittman stepping down. Purdue nixing the contract that forbade farmers from photographing inside their own farms, like the the Craig Watts uh, video that surfaced last year with Compassion for World Farming. Um, with Leah Garces, like that kind of thing. They tried to get yes. rid of people like him, and that didn't work out. They had to end up um, not going that in that direction. And then the Oxfam report on poultry workers, which came out last year. I mean, I was, I'm a little surprised that this has suddenly gotten so much traction when it, it came out in, like, October of 2015. There
1: may have been a preliminary one that came out, but kind of a more finalized one.
2: Oh, really? I'll have to read recently. it again. Yeah. Okay, because I interviewed uh, Oliver, What was it, Oliver Gutierrez, I think, was the author of that report, or...? What was his Gottfried name? Gottfried or something. Gottfried. Oliver Gottfried. That's right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's talk first. Um, what about Bittman leaving the Purple Carrot? Like, what happened? Did he tell you?
1: Well, he did not tell me. We had a very friendly conversation because I quoted him in a piece I did on Mill Kids. Uh-huh. Uh, for, the, for the print magazine. Right, right. So it was published in print, and then it, um, it went online last week. And in the interim, I had heard, sort of through back channels that he had left, Purple Carrot, and, um, but there was no public announcement of it. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm not, generally not the kind of journalist who goes you know, looking for scoops. I try to right. do analysis, not, you know, this guy left that company or whatever. Right, right. Um, but in order to update the story for the Internet, I had to call Mark and ask him, is it true that you stepped down from Purple Carrot? Um, and, in fact, he, he had. And he, he didn't really want to go into why very much. <laughs> um but it you know, from what I can tell it wasn't anything about I mean, I, I did a piece that was questioning the business model, not a purple carrot specifically, no, but, but, but just in general. The, the entire field in general. And it wasn't anything about the business model, he said. Um so mm. That's really all that he told me. I see. But I I do think it was, you know, he's such a legendary figure, such an important figure in food writing that, you know, it was a bit of a shock when he left writing to join a startup, and, you know, less than six months later, he's out of the startup. So it, it is remarkable, and I can see why people see his news. And I think we'll probably be hearing more from him before too long.
0: Oh, you know, whenever it is that
1: he figures out what he's doing next, I bet we'll get more of an explanation.
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, I think wasn't he supposed to be sort of the idea guy behind the meals or something? He was the menu developer, right, or something like that. Yeah, that that was
1: going to be one of his things that Mm -hmm. he would be the he was the the chief innovation officer, I I think. But I think that they were, you know, they they really wanted to brand the company as Mm -hmm. you will get, you know, you'll get recipes from Mark Bittman. Yes, that was going to be like the big thing.
2: Right. Right. Huh. Well, we'll see what happens. But what so why do you have it in for meal kits? I think they're like the gateway drug to real cooking. I, I like them. I think they're really um, you know, sort of an interesting idea. And I think that people do graduate from from buying meal kits where every single thing is portioned out for you to like actually having a pantry. You don't think that happens?
1: I think it's I think it's possible. I I don't think they've been around long enough for us to have real data. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think they do have potential in that way. But my objection was a little bit different. Um, what I think about them, um, and, I, and you mentioned, I think, in an email that you know that the meal kits end up, end up being pretty cheap. They're they're, they're um, you know not such a bad deal. They're
2: not considering yeah.
1: that you're getting all these ingredients at your door and a recipe, and there's no food waste or whatever. You know, there's no right. waste in that. In the, Procurement, but but here's my problem: it is that very low price, and so what what I think is that to make it affordable for a broad section of the public, the margins are going to be really really tight. Hmm. And so it's a you know I, I think that when you think about venture capital and what sort of Silicon Valley venture capital is looking for they're looking for really high profitability. Yeah. And, you know, you think about a company like Google that's essentially um, some engineers and a bunch of computers strung together in various um, parts of the country. Um, and so most of what it does, once it meets those fixed costs, is pure profit. Right. And so you know, all this online advertising that it's doing um, is just basically little bits of code going back and forth. Across the internet, so sure. it's a very, very high-margin business. Yeah, yeah. But when you start package, you know, procuring food, and you know, all these companies want to boast, as they should, about the quality of their ingredients. So they're not skipping on ingredients. So you're getting expensive ingredients. You've got, um, you know, you got a warehouse somewhere with people. Um, assembling these little boxes yeah. of of ingredients and, you know, tiny little packaging. And we can get into the whole packaging angle if you want.
2: Yeah, the packaging um, angle is a bit disturbing. Sh- yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, so everything is hyper-packaged. as It has to be to keep it fresh. Yeah. Um, oftentimes with dry ice and lots of insulation, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then it's, you know, being shipped cross-country. All of these processes are pretty expensive. Yeah. And so the, the profitability there is not going to be Google-like. And so what I, uh, I talked to an, an analyst who looks at the business, um, sort of the food technology business, and what she said is that these, you know, these guys are going in, are plowing huge amounts of money into these, into these companies with expectations of you know the Uber of food or something. Yeah. Um, but what they're really doing is starting a combination of a catering business and a, and a grocery store. Yeah. And if you think about those two businesses and as, as Katie, I know you're someone who's worked in the food industry before, yeah, yeah. those are not real high margin businesses. <laughs> right? I mean, Yeah, I barely rep- kept restaurants alive. They're not high margin. <laughs> um catering is not high margin no. and grocery stores are not high margin. Right. And so you're combining these, you know, these kind of difficult business models and and what she said is that it can be really profitable if you get lots and lots and lots of scale. But getting to the sort of giant level where if you're making a couple pennies off of each transaction, those pennies add up in, into billions of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in profit is going to take massive scale. And I think that what I, you know, the headline, of course, was like, I, you know, I've seen the future and there are, are no meal kits. <laughs> yes. No, it's not quite that. I've, I think I've seen the future and there's maybe Amazon runs a meal kit or like runs the meal kit company that everyone uses or, you know, some gigantic mm-hmm. grocery store chain. I mean, that's that's something I didn't really get to, get to in my article, but, you know, your local grocery store could probably do this with a lot less overhead because it already is procuring food. Yeah. It already has facilities that are in your town. They're not, you know, in California right, or right. New York or Boston, like all these companies are but it would be, you know, in your town. And you could get that sort of convenience of this recipe parcels out for you, um, but the, co- the sort of back-end cost would be a lot lower, therefore more profitable. And so something like that could undercut these companies. And so I, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation. And, you know, what I said was, in my, you know, my, my kicker and my piece was, you know, if you're curious about this, Go do it right now because yeah. there are crazy offers. Every one of these companies is offering you with no obligation, you know, something like two free meals um, at the very at the very outset. Yeah. And so, you know, and what that is is venture capital going up in smoke. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you might as well grab some of it if you if you're curious.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I you know I did a whole series on innovations, and I, I interviewed uh, the guy who started Dig In, which is a stationary place, but you can do takeout. <clears throat> um, but it's sort of similar in that sense. And then and then Blue Apron, the founder of Blue Apron. Um and both okay. of them were incredibly smart guys. In fact, the guy from Dig In was a former venture capitalist. Um yeah. the guy from Blue Apron, um, I forget he had been a chef and anyway, he was very smart and he said and I said, How can you do this at this price point? Um and he yeah. said just the scale. I mean, like they've gotten up to scale in various cities in order to make it cheap enough. But I mean I have to say that doesn't really Uh, You know, I I was not completely convinced, but let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about the Oxfam report that we referred to in the joys and sorrows section. Because the thing that blows my mind about this, you know, it finally is getting some actual press. Besides you, but even the Huffington Post and uh, even the New York Times, I think paid paid uh, attention to it. But why is the fact that the bathroom breaks are the thing that people talk about? In other words, pissing yourself is obviously so horrible that everyone picks up on that. When the reality is, is that uh, there are so many other problems with working on a meat production line um, in terms yes. of musculoskeletal damage, um, in terms yep. of inhaling chemicals. I mean, you know, like the, the fact that their wages are being stolen, that they don't get paid for overtime, uh, that the conditions yep. are incredibly dirty and dangerous. I mean, none of that gets any traction. It's all about the fact that they have to wear diapers, which I consider the least of the problems.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, like... you know, I I kind of had, this, had a similar idea when I um, – you know I'cause you know, like you said this this is not a new story. Right. Um, there was a great um Southern Poverty Law Center report about the same topic. yes, well, it wasn't fully about the topic, but it mentioned as one of the problems with in the poultry industry um back in two thousand thirteen mm-hmm. um and and it, you know it it's been to people who cover this like you and me, this has been a well known thing. Yeah. And, and then this report comes out and it kind of explodes, and I wrote about it a few days after the report came out, and it had already been covered to, to death. And, um, and I think one of the things that's smart about it is that, um, you know, no editor is going to say stop the presses because carpal tunnel syndrome rates are really high in the culture industry, or um, people got a lot of cuts while they work on poultry lines, or, I mean, I used to write about, um, there was this USDA plan to speed up the poultry line.
2: Yeah, right.
1: And, um, and and I was one of the few reporters really, really dogging that story. It ended up not happening temporarily. It may still happen. Yeah. But it's just really hard to get people to take an interest in, you know, this cheap food product that, you, that we've all become accustomed to, and we've been hearing about this muscular skeletal stuff for a while. Um, and uh, and then suddenly this this bathroom breaks stuff breaks into the headlines. And so I, I think, it, it, you know, I think that is sort of proof in the pudding that it was a, a good thing to focus on because it kind of broke into the conversation. Yeah. But then I, and then I wrote about it, you know, when I sort of looked at the, read the study, re- remembered I had written about it before from this 2013 Southern Poverty Law Center thing. Right. You know, putting it together and explaining why it is that these workers don't get bathroom breaks it when you explain it you have to talk about the line speed you have to talk about the what it means to work on a line that's going you know it's going as fast as 140 birds per minute yeah um and and so it becomes like this lens into this really abusive system and so in the end, I, I think that I, I think it was a great thing to write a report about because you know if Oxfam had done a report about you know like the Southern Poverty Law Center thing, the main focus of it was that the industry has found ways to undercount injury rates in yep. in the in you know among workers in the industry, and I wrote about it, but it didn't get much play. Right. So this one is about people wearing diapers to work, or you know literally running down a hall, ripping equipment off, um, sprinting to go to the bathroom so they can get back within 10 minutes. Yeah. And I think, you know, people can identify with that. Like, oh, you know, on my job, I might, you know, I think my lead was something like, you know, you think you got it bad, (laughs) but you probably, on your job, but you probably take for granted that, you know, uh, access to the bathroom when you need it. Right well these workers don't even have that and then so people can can identify with that and then you can get into some of the details of of why it's like that
2: right and what line work is all about well you make a good case for yeah. that i just was like i was just so you know like because there's so many other problems that are scary and and upsetting and you know and just totally unacceptable it was just like yeah oh my god that's like the least you know like so they wear a diaper. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and,
1: and, and the same thing that, that makes it such a dangerous job from a, you know, sort of carpal tunnel perspective is the same thing that, that makes it hard to give these workers bathroom breaks. Right. Because the line is going so fast. Yeah. And let's say, say, and it's a totally say there's a in repetitive line. Yeah. Um, if one person casually walks off to go to the bathroom, then they either have to slow down the line or they're going to. Um, or, or the, the workers that are left are going to be working even faster and subjecting themselves to even more trouble. Um, and then, you know, the obvious solution to that is either A, slow the line down, or B, hire more workers and right. have floaters. Right. Um, and both of those things cost money, so the, the industry doesn't want to do it. Right. And it's in such this race to the bottom where shaving pennies off here and there um, become really important. That you know, of course, these pressures exist, and the people who pay the price for it are the people on the line,
2: who are largely uh, undocumented workers, yeah, <laughs> or people who don't particularly speak English something well. Like,
1: you know, ten bucks an hour, median, right. median uh, wage. Right, right.
2: Um, let's move on from that because um, uh, there's so much more to cover, and we're we're actually almost running out of time, which just breaks my heart. Um, I did you read the plate of the union? Did you follow the whole f- American food policy for the 21st century?
1: Um, I did. I I, I did when it launched, and I thought it was a great idea. Right. But I'm with you on, um, you know, so far it's been completely absent from that discussion. Like,
2: DOA, man. I mean, DOA. Like, not a thing, not a single. I mean, even the Huffington Post, like, Said something a couple of weeks ago about how, you know, this big initiative that was rolled out with all this fanfare of the plate of the union, and they, you know, they were all over the media, and nothing. Not only did nothing happen, but not even other newspapers really picked it up. I mean, when Bittman, I think, was in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses, they they published an, an op-ed um, in the in the Des Moines uh, Register, but that was literally it. I mean, literally it. Nothing else has happened. I don't understand. Like why. Why is the media failing to address, um, you know, even the po- idea of a food policy plank, do you think, in this upcoming election cycle? I would have thought that there would be quite a few people who would jump on this. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's
1: – I think in an, even in a normal election year, it's really hard to get food policy – it's just really hard for food policy to break into the national conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, you, had, you know, in 2008, you had Pollan writing that essay, Farmer-in-Chief. Yeah, uh, and the New York Times Magazine, and that kind of forced it in a little bit. Right, but you know, it was never, you know, even that election was never really part of the debate. Um, mm. Although, you know, Barack Obama did make some promises. You know, he did feel compelled in the primary season to make some promises on, on some things, um, and some of them he tried to follow through on. Yeah, uh, like food didn't. safety modernization um, act. But in, and this election is completely absent, and I think part of it is just how bizarre the election has been, where you've got this, you know, this insane character, <laughs> reality TV star, um, rich guy, right, who is taking all of the attention yeah. and sort of really controlling the debate. And um, I think, you know, the opportunity to – the one opportunity that I think could have existed to make it to sort of Uh, Elevate it um, Would have been Bernie Sanders Yes, uh, from an agricultural state Right? Yeah, and it just just didn't You know, I think his campaign strategy um, Ended up being really narrow We're going to talk about Wall Street um, Influence on the Democratic Party And we're going to talk about um, Single-payer health care And, you know, he really sort of Narrowed his message down to those things Right And um, I think Food policy became one of the kind of many things that were left out. So between those two factors, I think, you know, a conventional candidate like Hillary Clinton is not going to run on something like that. It was was going to take an insurgent. And Bernie didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And then, meanwhile, you know, 85% of the rest of the oxygen in the room is going to Donald Trump.
2: Right. He who shall not be named. so it
1: just, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I did a piece that drop like a stone about some questions i would ask the candidates back when there's a bunch of debates happening right and and you know it, it dropped you know no one thought that any of those questions were actually going to be <laughs> asked it was more like an exercise in wouldn't it be nice if
2: right right of course
1: um, but i i just think it's really hard in a, in a good year to, i mean we both know from covering this stuff that you know when the farm bill is going on mm. it's really hard to get an intelligent uh conversa- you know, conversation going in in the media, much less in Congress about, yeah, really, about okay. it. Yeah. And you know, right now, um the school lunch uh reauthorization is taking place and That's I've right. tried to cover it some but um but you know it, it's taking place in this comp- you know, more or less complete vacuum not being discussed very much. Yeah. Um yeah. And, and so uh, you know food policy is just so marginal despite efforts of people like you and me it's so marginal in the national discourse and yeah. i think that is a real um, how did you construct it joys and sorrows it's a real sorrow
2: yeah it's a sorrow <laughs> and yeah. it's and it's you know what's interesting about it to me is like i if i were hillary clinton i would have jumped on this because it addresses Women's issues. It addresses children's health. It addresses you know overall health for the nation. I mean, it's you know there's so much so much juice. uh, Like even if you don't want to confront Big Ag or Big Food or any of that stuff, you can still bring it into the political conversation by talking about the health related issues that are associated with the diet that we have. And um, that is true. You know, I'm really surprised that she didn't make that. You could have
1: picked up on Michelle Obama's.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, why would you not like pick up on something that's already been shown to be, you know, at least of concern to women. I mean, it would definitely invest women in, more in voting for Hillary. I think if they, if there was a bigger plank in her platform about, you know, I'm going to make sure that school nutrition is, you know, is fully funded. I'm going to make sure that women farmers are fully, fund, you know, like any whatever you want, but like make it a women's issue. Like when are women yeah. going to get some some juice out of these things? You know, it's like really incredible. But let's, um, because we are almost almost out of time. But I do want to talk to you for a second about that that. Food policy, uh, national food policy of the 21st century. Because, I mean, of course, I loved it. You know, I mean, it's it's a great paper. It's really worth reading. Everybody should read it. Um, And I've actually done quite a few shows around it. I had Ricardo Salvador on. I mean, you know, I was like, really loved it. But, you know, when I read it over again, for instance, um, the other day I was um, at the Good Food, uh, no, it was a food book fair and they had a great okay. panel and t- Michael Hurwitz from Grow NYC who runs the green markets in New York was one of the panelists and and they were and you know part of the talking points in the paper is like paying farm workers an affordable wage and Michael yep. who works with farmers every single day of his life he basically read to us a conversation that he had with one of his farmers to wit the farmer uses the same seasonal workers every year he's been using them for 25 years he pays them what he can pay them whatever the minimum wage is and he said to Michael I mean, I love these people, but what do you think I'm going to do, you know, when um, I suddenly have to pay them overtime? Like, how the hell am I going to pay them overtime? I can't possibly do it. I'm already, you know, $500,000 in debt just from buying seed and equipment for the coming season. Like, you know, where is this money supposed to come from? And that, I think, is such a legitimate question, and it leads me to my next question, which is why aren't more farmers part of this conversation? I was asking uh, Bob Martin from... um, from uh, the Center for a Livable Future, the same thing last week. It was like, when are we going to include more sort of mainstream farmers into these conversations to talk about what their needs are and to understand how we can, you know, move things around so that they, they're they not the villains here, you know?
1: Yes. I think that's a super important point. And, um, and what it makes me think of, you know, the whole conversation we're just having right now makes me think of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Right. Um, down in Florida because they had the same dilemma. So they were, you know, back, let's say, 15 years ago, they were, so this is this group of uh, farm workers that have organized in Immokalee, Florida where we get something like 80% of our tomatoes Tomatoes, in winter months. Right. And it's these gigantic industrial tomato fields and the the wages um, you know, had stagnated for 30 years um, and there was, you know, I've been down there. It's like Incredible poverty and conditions, uh, sometimes that were actual slavery. Sure. And and so these these you know powerless uh, undocumented farm workers began to organize, and the first thing they did was they took on the farmers. Right. And they they you know they I think there was actually a wildcat strike, and it was just brutal. And they weren't getting anywhere. And of course the you know the Florida government wasn't um, giving them time of day. The, right. The growers were real tied into the government and and so they went through this period of stagnation and then they realized that wait a minute we are making the farmers the enemy when they are actually under this other part of the food system which are these really consolidated buying markets yeah so you got the fast food companies and the grocery companies That's right. and these companies will play the amoqui uh, tomatoes off against mexican tomatoes and say well you know, we're going to pay you this this price and you can take it or leave it. And if you leave it, we'll just go down to Mexico. And You've got 100 right. acres of tomatoes that you need to get rid of And so you take the price. And so what they did, and I think this is the key here, is they went after those end buyers, obviously. They went after McDonald's and Taco Bell and those companies yeah. and got them, you know, that the penny a pound campaign. And I think that the insight there is that we've got to look at the final sort of, chain in the market, and that is really these hyper-consolidated, whether it's the grain buying firms like Cargill and ADM, right, or the you know massive buyers of produce like Walmart and grocery stores and, and sure. you know, giant Broker, restaurant chains, yeah, right. mm-hmm. and it's pressuring them to, if they pay a higher price, if they pay a fair price, then and then making deals like they, they, they made in Immokalee, where if they pay a higher price, then farmers get a cut. It's got to be a whole systemic approach, because otherwise, you're exactly right. You're just attacking farmers who, uh, for the most part, are just scraping by. Just scraping by, yeah. Some of them trying to do the right thing, some of them not, but none of them making huge amounts of money.
2: Yeah, for an incredible amount of work. I mean, anyone who has ever visited a farm,
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs>
2: I'm yeah. sure can realize that. Um, wh- there was another point that, that bugged me as well, um, and so uh, so let's let's run this one down too. And that was they said they you know we, they'd like to see people in, uh, you know the government increasing SNAP benefits so that more people can afford fruits and vegetables. But the kicker is, um, and I learned this when I worked in a food pantry for a while, um, not that many low-income people have access to working kitchens for one thing. Or equipment right. in which to cook their food. Um, they might have yep. one or two pots or pans, they might have a hot plate. I mean they really you know, it's pretty it's pretty bare bones. Um and yep. and, and, and a lot of them don't have culinary skills anymore. You know, like they don't they yep. simply are of a generation where that isn't happening. And and so I felt like there should really be an education piece in there as well because what i did at the pantry was teach people how to cook produce like they would get this amazing produce in this is saint john's bread and life and then i would make up a couple of recipes that showed them how to use swiss chard or you know rainbow carrots or you know whatever it was um because the woman who was running the department was like getting this amazing produce in and um and it was just it was kind of shocking like people they literally didn't know what stuff was um, yeah. you know, they'd never tasted it before. It was, it was really an eye opener for me about like, you know, we all theorize about what will make the poor feel better or what will give better nutrition. But the bottom line is like, it comes down to like having a place to cook, <laughs> you know, like having enough,
1: Yeah. Oftentimes. you know, yeah. I mean,
2: it's really, and, and having just some know-how beyond opening a can or reheating, yeah, you know, a processed food, it's, it's a, it's yeah, a serious and even, problem.
1: And Poverty being the root cause, like poverty plus access to great ingredients is still poverty, and like you said, right. there there are all these other conditions in, involved. And you know, I have also beaten my head up against that wall uh, over the years. And and one one concrete response that could be happening, um, this gets us back to you know how, how you know impoverished our national food conversation is, mm-hmm. but is. Um, you know, the, just the simple Alice Waters idea of the school as, um, you know, the the, the public school is, is an institution that's supposed to be teaching people how to be citizens, how to think, how to write, how to read, how to do math. Mm. And I think that um, that culinary skills, you know, especially since we're a generation or two or three into this era when, right. you know, people don't know how to cook, they're not passing it down generation to generation, these skills are evaporating, is yeah. Sort of, you know, a generation or 2 who's been raised in industrial food, that you know, let's use the school system as a way to um, reteach those skills. Just simple skills: how to chop an onion, how to follow a recipe, yeah, um, how to do a grocery you know, store shopping,
2: how to go into a grocery how to, how to store, read, read labels, store,
1: how to run a, how, yeah. to, how to start up and maintain a pantry, right. right.
2: Right, exactly. Um, home
1: economics. Um, let's revive home, home economics in, yeah. a, in, in a thoughtful way and in, in a non-gendered way.
2: Right, right. Make
1: it universal for boys and girls. Um, but you know, all that all that requires resources, and we're not a society right now that feels very much like investing public resources in something that would be a public good. And and I know that you know this solution that I just tossed out there wouldn't um, have an immediate effect. It wouldn't teach. Uh, a, a 35-year-old um, low-income person how to cook. But it, it's a long-term thing that we need to, you know, start taking seriously as a society, and yeah. the, the public school is an institution that that could that could theoretically do that.
2: Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I, ever since I started doing this program, and, and Jack can confirm this, I have been talking about reviving home ec, um, because it was yes. just going out of style as I was going out of high school. And, um, you know, they started just shutting that whole, you know, home ec and shop for boys. I mean, it was very gendered. I would like to see girls get shop. I mean, I think learning how to do basic repairs, not having to rely on somebody else, and especially for women, not having to rely on, you know, a man to help you rewire your lamp or, you know, fix a socket or, you know, what I mean, like,
1: it's really. In the end, end, they're both home economics.
2: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really Basic important. Basic
1: living skills.
2: Basic living skills. And I have
1: to say that I, you know, over the years have gotten myself pretty good kitchen skills. Yeah. But I remain a complete idiot about rewiring re- re- the lamp or anything like that. And, <laughs> I, um, ha-
2: I have taught myself to do that. Um, <laughs> and, and it might interest <laughs> been you to know. I am
1: incapable, but I think maybe when I was a kid, I might have been capable. If I had no, been you could do it kitchen. now.
2: It's, it's a lot easier than it sounds. Um, and, and also, I should tell you, Tom, that I purchased a chainsaw recently, which I have not yet learned how to use because I am completely wow. terrified of it.
1: <laughs> I learned how to use one with great trepidation while at Maverick Farms in North yeah. Carolina. And, yeah. um, it was empowering and also terrifying. Terrifying.
2: Oh, please don't tell me that. Cause my brother be really careful. I well, listen. A friend of mine who's also a woman. I mean, we have to wrap up in a minute, but she posted a photograph of herself. You know, chick with chainsaw, really badass. And I'm like, yes. And then I looked at her more closely, and I realized she was wearing these like giant orange puffy tra- chaps. I could, I can only call them yes. chaps. And then she had on a helmet. I don't. Mine is battery powered, so it's very quiet. I don't need the the headgear. But she had on a helmet with like a full on. It looked like a um, welder's mask.
1: <laughs> well, let me and she recommend had these those big chaps.
2: Badass gloves. I'd rather
1: like, have that chainsaw okay. slipping down onto some chaps and bare flesh. I think or, before know, I, Unprotected flesh.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. I I do think that before I get really serious about this, and also I'm going on an incredibly long and exciting trip this summer to Europe, and I really I've decided I'm not going to play with my chainsaw till I get back. <laughs>
1: okay (laughs) just in case you're gonna do the show from Europe
2: uh no I'm not I am actually taking a little break because I've been doing this show week in week out for seven years I need to recharge a
1: much deserved break especially after (laughs) your book and everything that's Thank you, Tom.
2: Um, I guess we should wrap it up now. So I want people to know all about you. You have a new website, actually. And talk about your podcast. We didn't even get a chance to really – we can take a couple extra minutes. Tell people about your podcast because I listened to um, The Secret Ingredient the other day when I was in the car. It was really excellent. It was the one on nationalism. Um, And I'm going to go back and listen to all the rest of them. But um, tell what are you guys doing? Because it's it's not necessarily just food. It's sort of like food and other bigger philosophical questions. And I really liked it a lot. So talk, talk, talk.
1: I'm just super excited about both of my podcasts that I'm involved with. One of them is called The Secret Ingredient, and that is with Raj Patel, who is a food politics writer. Yeah, really. Great. Many of her listeners may have heard of and he's now down here at University of Texas. Uh huh. And Rebecca McEnroy, who's a producer at KUT, um, which is a local NPR affiliate. Mm-hmm. And in that show, it is kind of a nerd oriented show, and we do deep, we try to make it somewhat not nerdy, but we, I don't think we really succeed. But we we do deep dives into, um, you know, Raj calls it, you know, the secret ingredient at the end of the day is colonialism, capitalism, and death. And so we're looking at the story behind food and the social relations and economic relations behind it. Um, One of the shows that I'm proudest of is we interviewed – Sydney Mintz, who is a couple oh, um, died, before he died. A couple of months before he died. It's um, our very first show yeah. that we put up um, on the history of sugar, um, which is a, a, a super interesting and brutal history. And We talked to him for like an hour. Right. And I think it's his last public interview, wow. um, and, and I, I think that's kind of what we're going for on that show. Not that our guests die soon after. That's not what we're going for. <laughs> um, what we're going for is really deep dives into... And you'll into never come back. <laughs> things that we take, yeah, yeah, we want our guests to come back, um, <laughs> right? but think, things that we, um, that we that we take for granted, something as, as yeah. banal as the as a Sugar Bowl. Um, and then the Byte, I'm also really excited about, um, it's called, there's no D. it's just Byte Podcast. Okay. And, um, and Byte is two of my amazing Mother Jones colleagues, Maddie Oatman and Kara Butler, uh, both of them. who They're sort of my two editors, um, um, it, it turns out. Um, Kara's now on maternity leave, but she's my regular editor. Maddie um, takes her place when, when, when Kara's gone. And so we have a really tight relationship. Great. They're both in San Francisco. Um, and we have a weekly guest on and it's more kind of foody, and it's still looking at food politics. So we try to be snappier and kind of more current. Like we'll talk to someone like Sidney Mintz's book that we discussed, um, sweetness and power um, came out in the nineties and that's no problem for the secret ingredient. We'll talk, you know, if if someone wrote something, it doesn't matter if it was 30 years ago. Whereas on bite. You know we're trying to be a little snappier uh on on, on who we talk to it's also shorter mm-hmm. like a half an hour yeah and we do we have little segments and um and it's evolving um as as both podcasts are actually evolving it's all podcasts I always do even yours oh yeah um after seven years you've got a new feature on yeah. uh, and it's yeah. great
2: I know don't remind uh, people it's we're been seven
1: years sort of experimental <laughs> phase in, in both of them and um and and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I uh, recommend you know they're both uh, available on iTunes and Stitcher and, and what have you. Great, the secret ingredient and bite. Yeah, so, and um, Katie, I will be yeah, back baby. on your show anytime you want me. Okay, um, honey, because I, I, I,
2: I do love having you on, Tom. You're like my you're like my sounding board for you know you're you're my bullshit meter. I mean. <laughs> Awesome. So you're just like so on top of everything anyway we should wrap it up here but thank you so much and thanks to my sponsor Bonnie Plants and to my beloved Jack Inslee as always for engineering today and uh, Tom will be talking soon and thanks for listening folks until next week ciao
1: bye bye